You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at RedeemerFortBend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. Just east of the Sierra Nevada mountains sits the town of Bodie, California. Bodie has a post office and a church and many homes, but it has no people. Bodie is a ghost town. In the 1880s, it had over 5,000 citizens, but since 1950, it's been uninhabited. And there are many such towns across the western United States today. But what makes Bodie a popular place to visit is that its buildings remain in relatively good condition, even though they've been empty for 70 years. Bodie is an environment that could support life, but doesn't. Well, last week, as we began our study in the book of Genesis, we saw that God created the heavens and the earth. And we left off at the third day of creation, at which point the cosmos were a little like Bodie. Inhabitable, but empty. The skies had no stars or planets or moons. The world had only water, dirt, and plants. Creation was perfect, but vacant. But Isaiah 45, verse 18 says, The Lord who created the heaven, He is God, who formed the earth and made it, did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. God's intention was for his cosmos to be inhabited. And today, as we continue in Genesis 1, we'll see God fulfilling that intent. As God fills the heavens above with celestial bodies, and he populates the earth below with living creatures. That's what we'll see today in Genesis chapter 1, verses 14 through 31. And today we're going to see two points. First, God's creation of the celestial bodies and animals communicates countercultural truth. And second, God's creation of humanity communicates his kindly rulership over all things. Let's start with our first point, which is that God's creation of the celestial bodies and animals communicates countercultural truth. Now last week we looked at the first 13 verses of Genesis and we saw seven truths about God. We saw that God exists that God is unique, that God exists in the community of the Trinity, that God created everything, that God alone declares what is good, that God is sovereign over all things, and that God is the source of all life. And as we come to verse 18, we now encounter an eighth truth about God, which is that God is a God of order. God's creation follows an intentional organized pattern. In the first three days of creation, God built habitable spaces, and now over the next three days, God fills those spaces. And he does so in a way that establishes a symmetry between the first three days and the second three days. Let me show you what I mean. On day one, God created time by shining his light forth upon the darkened world. And now on day four, God fills the heavens with celestial bodies that will mark time and will give their own light. 
Look at Genesis 1 verse 14. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. Now our author Moses describes God's activity here in a way that is totally contrary to the prevailing religious ideas of his day. Remember, Moses is writing at a real time into a real situation. He's writing to the Israelites about their God. And he's doing so in a way that contrasts the truth about God with the false religions that they had encountered in Egypt and would soon encounter in Canaan. False religions that worshipped sun and moon gods. But Moses here doesn't treat the sun and moon like gods because they aren't. In fact, he doesn't even dignify them with their Hebrew names. He just calls them the greater light and the lesser light because the sun and moon are not worthy of worship. They're just lamps that God has hung in the heavens. In the same way, ancient Near Eastern religions practiced astrology. They predicted the future by charting the stars. But God opposes this. Deuteronomy 18.14 says, The Canaanites, which you are about to dispossess, listen to fortune tellers and to diviners, but as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. And to make this same point, Moses here treats the stars as an afterthought. He says, oh yeah, God made the stars too. Barely mentions them. Because the stars are not some powerful destiny governing force. Instead, Moses says their purpose was for signs and seasons for days and years. They exist to help mark the time. And in this, they serve the worship of the true God who gave Israel a calendar who required them to observe the Sabbath and various religious holidays at fixed times. The celestial bodies were made for God's worship. And having made them, verse 18, God saw that it was good. Now we discussed this word good last week, and we said in Hebrew this is the word tov. And we said that when God calls something tov, he's saying it reflects his good design and his good character. And as God looks at the celestial bodies, he is pleased. Because as Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Verse 19, and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. Fourth day ends. But now we continue to the fifth day. And just like God's work on day four corresponded to his work on day one, now God's work on day five corresponds to his work on day two. On the second day, God made the air and the sea. And now on the fifth day, God fills the air and the sea with life. Look at verse 20. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures 
and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. God creates animal life in the water and the air, and he does so by his word. See, God's word gives life. That's true today, right? The gospel brings us into eternal life when we believe. In the same way, in the beginning, God's creative word generates life. And animal life is created by God's word in an organized way. Sea creatures are formed in the water. Flying creatures are formed in the air. And they are created in distinct, independent acts according to their kinds. I'll return to that in a minute. Now look at verse 21, and we see here a comment about the great sea creatures. The word used here was used by other ancient Near Eastern cultures to refer to terrifying monsters from their pagan mythologies. Monsters that would periodically arise, kind of like, you know, Godzilla in a movie or something. And they would war against the gods and try to plunge the cosmos uh, back into chaos. But Moses is having none of that. Whatever the pagans believed to be, these terrible monsters were actually just God's creatures. They weren't legitimate challengers to God's power. They weren't monsters that threatened the cosmos with chaos. No, these were just animals that God made and cared for, that obeyed his voice. In fact, in Job 41, God speaks of playing with one such creature like it's his pet. Again, Moses is saying the prevailing religious idea of, ideas of his day are false. The way the pagans think about spiritual truth just totally pales in comparison to the true God who reigns over all absolutely. And the worst nightmares in the false religions are just the obedient playthings of the living God. And as God looks at the first animal life he has created, look at verse 21, God saw that it was good. It reflects God's design and character. But God doesn't just create life here. Now God shows his good character because for the first time, God pronounces a word of blessing. Verse 22, and God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. Now, what is this blessing? Well, the context here tells us that God's blessing enables the animals to reproduce, to fill their domains of air and water. And this is an idea we see throughout the Old Testament, that reproduction is a blessing. Now, interestingly, this idea is not repeated in the New Testament. We're going to see the New Testament has a somewhat different notion of blessing at the end of our time today. But here God blesses the animals by enabling them to reproduce. And the fifth day ends. But we come now to the sixth day. And just as day four related to day one, and just as day five related to day two, day six relates to day three. On the third day of creation, God did two things. First, he caused the dry land to emerge. And second, he caused plant life to begin. And now on the sixth day, God again does two things. First, he creates land animals, and then God creates humans. Let's just look at the animals for right now. Look at verse 24. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. 
And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Again, God speaks and life appears on the dry land. And Moses identifies three types of land animals that appear. First, livestock, like cattle. Then creeping things, which Leviticus uses to describe small animals that crawl on the ground, whether mammal or reptile. And finally, everything else. And again, we're told God created these animals according to their kinds. And as God looks at the animals, he pronounces them tov. They reflect his design and character. Now, we've covered a lot of ground here. What should we take from all of this? Moses utterly rejects the false religions of his day that worship the creation, and instead he asserts the reality and supremacy of the Creator, the God of Israel. In the same way, friends, we need to know that today there is still spiritual truth and spiritual error. And we need to reject the false spiritual ideas of our day, and we need to cling to the truth about God. Now, what is the prevailing false spirituality of our day? Well, it's pluralism. See, that everybody's spiritual ideas are equally valid. But friends, Moses is not a pluralist. He's not saying here, well, we have our God and our truth, and you have your gods and your truth. No, no, no. Moses makes exclusive claims. He says the polytheistic religions are wrong and Israel's God is God alone. Nowadays, people get offended by statements like that, but Moses is right to say it because it's true. Isaiah 45.5 says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. Friends, today we need to know that there is truth about God which is exclusive. Pluralism is false. We need to know that today God speaks about His Son, the Lord Jesus, and declares in Acts 4 that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Salvation and truth are found in God and God's Son and God's Word alone. And everything else is false. It doesn't reflect reality. It doesn't come from God. In fact, Deuteronomy 32 says it comes from demons. And 1 Timothy 4 says that demons generate doctrine, false religious ideas. And these false religious ideas are dangerous. They point their practitioners to eternal ruin. And friends, that shouldn't surprise us. Because Jesus says in John 8 about Satan, there's no truth in him. He's the father of lies and he was a murderer from the beginning. False spiritual ideas are eternally murderous. Because they turn people away from eternal life in Jesus and point them to an eternity in hell. So friends, we've got to know today there are true religious ideas that come from God and false religious ideas that come from demons. Now in our world, what kind of ideas predominate? The false ones, right? And that was true in Moses' day as well. And there's a reason for that. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says that the God of this world is talking about Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Satan reigns over every culture on earth, and he spreads his lies far and wide. That's why in Moses' day, all the countries but Israel were polytheists. That's why in our day, we see so many false ideas that have currency. That's why God's truth and word have always been unpopular and hated throughout the world. But friend, if you claim the name of Christ, you must cling to God's truth and not mix God's truth with the lies of the world. 
God told Israel in Leviticus 18, 24, Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things. And he's talking about the occult and sexual practices of the Canaanites. He says, For by all these, the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules. See, God's people were not to adulterate God's truth by adopting the false ideas and practices of the pagan religions around them. They were to obey God alone. In the same way today, Christian friends, 2 Corinthians 6 says to us, What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? The obvious answer is none. There is to be no partnership between truth and error. Instead, God says, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that we need to physically withdraw from unbelievers around us, that we need to retreat to a monastery. No. But friends, there is to be a distinction between God's people and the world, and that means that God's people need to confess God's truth and reject the world's lies. This is unpopular, it's countercultural, it always has been. In Moses' day, what was popular was syncretism. Let's merge religions. You get your gods and I get mine and we'll worship them all together. Because compromise has always been a feature of the world's spirituality. But compromise is not something that God permits us. If we claim Christ, we must not adopt beliefs or practices that are contrary to Him. Friend, is this something that you are doing? Are you claiming Christ while living like the world? Many young people today are caught up in the very same kind of things that Moses was condemning here. Astrology and fortune telling. Is that you? Friend, depart from that demonic iniquity. Do you live in a way that is distinct from how unbelievers live? In what you look at or think about or talk about? Is your life indistinguishable from the world? To what extent have you bought into the prevailing pluralistic ideology of our age? Do you believe that spiritual truth is found in God's word alone? Or do you give quarter to lies? When you hear people say spiritual things that are false, do you just say, well, I'm not going to talk about that because you don't want to cause conflict? Maybe you've actually started to believe the lie that Christianity is just one of many roads that lead to salvation. Friends, Jesus is clear. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Have you compromised God's truth by mixing it with the prevailing scientific mythology that we discussed last week? Friend, I warn you, we must not compromise our beliefs to accommodate false popular ideas. Romans 12, 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Friends, God hates the false wisdom of this world. 1 Corinthians 3.19 says, The wisdom of the world is folly to God. If we claim Christ, we must maintain His truth and not mix it with error. Now, in our passage, we've seen Moses describe the beginning of animal life. And so this is a good place to ask, what should we think about the theory of evolution? Is evolution compatible with Christianity? Now, to put us all on the same page, let me define evolution as the theory that consists of the following three ideas. Number one, microevolution, that living things gradually change through genetic mutation. 
Number two, natural selection. That living things with genetic mutations that are favorable in a given environment are more likely to survive and flourish than similar creatures without those favorable mutations. And number three, macroevolution. The idea that as species accumulate many microevolutions, they birth new species. How should we respond to these ideas? Well, I think biblically we have no problem with microevolution. The Bible never talks about whether living things gradually change through genetic mutation. And microevolution has been observed many times over the last two centuries. In fact, we've all experienced the effects of this. Uh, every year, the flu virus changes a little bit and spawns new strains, which are able to get through our immune systems. That's why we get the flu every so often. That's microevolution, and it happens. In the same way, biblically, I don't think we have big problems with natural selection either. Now, I don't like the term natural selection because I think it communicates that an impersonal force is driving biological change rather than divine providence. But yes, similar creatures in the same environment may fare differently, and the reason may well be because of their genetic traits. Let me ask you, what's going to do better in a winter storm? A hairless chihuahua or a furry husky? What's going to survive better in the desert of those two options, right? See, a collision of genetics and environment does lead to different outcomes for different animals. That's natural selection, and that happens too. Biblically, where we have a big problem is with macroevolution. The idea that species beget new species. And we deny that this happens on a large scale. Yes, animals may microevolve over time in ways that make them more suited to their environment. And yes, one group of fish may, through mutation, generate a new type of fish. But I think we should deny that fish across billions of years beget reptiles. Or that reptiles across millions of years beget mammals. I don't think the fossil record bears that out, and, and frankly, I think it's contrary to Scripture. Because Scripture doesn't teach that all life shares a common descent from more primitive ancestors. Instead, we see in our passage that fish and birds and land mammals are created independently of one another with no common ancestry. Moreover, I argued last week that evolutionary theory is part of a contemporary myth that tries to explain everything without the existence of God. But friends, we must deny that life can arise from non-life. If you give a rock a billion years, you give it a trillion years, it isn't going to adopt the properties of life spontaneously. That isn't going to happen with non-living chemical compounds either. Life requires life. And life on earth came from something living. It came from the living God. So I think the macroevolutionary worldview is not consistent with Christianity. And I think we should resist attempts to embrace so-called theistic evolution as some sort of Christian and scientific hybrid explanation for the rise of life. Because while God certainly could direct an evolutionary process to generate all living things, the scripture indicates that he did not. Instead, he created various types of animal life distinct from one another. And so if over the years you've gravitated to understanding Genesis 1 through theistic evolution, I think you should revisit that. And really, I think you should turn away from it because we shouldn't mix truth with error. We should believe God's Word. And what God's Word indicates is that God created various animals according to their kinds. During the week of creation, God created all basic forms of life. God may not have created every type of fish that exists in the first week, but He created the first fish. 
He may not have created every type of bird that exists in the first week, but he created the first birds. He may not have created every breed of cat in the first week, but he created the first cats. And over time, new breeds or types of fish, birds, and cats emerged through genetics and, evolution, and environmental change. But these animals reproduced only with their own kinds, with creatures similar to themselves, and their offspring remained within their kinds. They did not cross over from being one type of animal to another. I think that's what the Bible teaches. And in our day, this is a countercultural idea. But God's word has always been countercultural. And though the world may pressure us to cave to its prevailing idea, we must hold to what God says. All right, we come now to our second point, which is that God's creation of humanity communicates his kind rulership over creation. Look at verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. For the second time on the sixth day, now God speaks. But God's words here differ from everything else he said in chapter 1. Because here God does not speak a word of creation, instead he speaks a word of intention. He explains what he is about to do. And this tells us that what God is about to do is something very special. It's unique from the rest of creation. What is this special thing? Well, God's going to make humanity. Now, notice that God speaks of himself here saying, let us. What is that plural us about? Well, last week we said that God is unique. That was the great theological confession of Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And yet we also saw last week that there is an aspect of plurality within this one God. We see that in the fact that the Hebrew word translated God here is Elohim, a plural noun. We see it in the apparent distinction between the God who speaks throughout the chapter and the Spirit of God who hovers in verse 2. And we see it here as God uses a plural verb to describe himself. Now, many critics have tried to avoid the conclusion that the word us here indicates plurality within God. Some have claimed that God here is addressing his angels. But I don't think that works, because when man is actually made in verse 27, it's God alone who makes man. The angels have nothing to do with it. Others claim that this is a royal we. Right? It's a good time to talk about royal we's. The coronation just happened, right? In some languages, when a monarch speaks of himself, he doesn't say I, he says we. And so Queen Victoria famously said, we are not amused. <laughs> Is that the kind of thing God's saying here? No. Because it seems that Hebrew did not use a royal we. And in the places where there might be a royal we, those are nouns that are pluralized, not verbs. So that is not the answer here either. Now the best answer is that there is something plural about God, which is revealed in the New Testament in the doctrine of the Trinity. God eternally exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the triune God now explains what he's going to do in making man. And he explains what man is going to be and what man is going to do. So what is man going to be? Well, God says he will make man in our image after our likeness. What does that mean? This is a question that's been debated for millennia. I'll give you my view. Being image bearers of God means that we image God in creation. In the ancient world, rulers had their faces carved onto statues and monuments so that everyone would know about them, what they looked like, and everyone would know that that land belonged to them. Similar things happen in our world today. 
About 20 years ago, the mayor of Houston caused a lot of controversy because he put a gigantic picture of himself at Intercontinental Airport because he wanted to be seen and known by everyone as the mayor of Houston. But while ancient and modern leaders want to be glorified by posting their image everywhere, this was not done in Israel because God forbade it. Exodus 20, he said, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath. God didn't want statues made of living things because he knew people would idolize them. And God did not want a statue that tried to depict him because the human imagination cannot accurately depict God. But while God forbade people from imaging him, God imaged himself. He made an image that declares to all life that this universe is his and that makes him known throughout creation. And that image is humanity. But how do people image God? Well, usually images work on the basis of visual correspondence, right? Like when the mayor put his picture up, it better look like him or else he'd wasted a lot of money, right? Well, actually, it probably was a waste of money anyway. But the point of an image is it's supposed to resemble the one who puts it out there, right? We don't image God like that. The idea here is not that we visibly resemble God's bodily form. Jesus said in John 4, God is spirit. The triune God is not a physically embodied being. That is the scandal of the incarnation, that God the Son would take on true humanity. That offended ancient Jews because they rightly understood that God was incorporeal. They just couldn't grasp that God might incarnate himself. But all that to say, we don't image God because of a visual correspondence to God's form. We resemble God in a different way. But the scripture never spells out for us how we image God. But I think we can figure this out. Because no other life form in Genesis 1 is said to image God. And so I think we can figure out how we reflect God by asking, what do we have in common with God that we don't have in common with animals? And I think those characteristics likely explain how we image God. So let me now posit five characteristics, I think, that, that show how we reflect God. First, God reasons and speaks. We do this too. Animals don't. We have a cat named Sunday. Sunday can communicate with us. When he wants to come into the bedroom, he scratches on the door and meows very loudly. When he wants his litter changed, he leaves us presents on the floor. But Sunday cannot reason or speak with us. Now, some animals can engage in something that resembles speech. Right? Parrots can mimic speech. Apes can use sign language. But they aren't engaging in higher-level reasoning. You can't discuss theology with them. You can't even discuss football. There's a barrier, a qualitative difference. That's because humanity reflects God's reasoning and speech in a way animals don't. Second, God engages in skilled labor. Chapter 2 will say that's what creation was, God's skilled labor. Animals can't do skilled labor, but people can. Third, God exists in community, the community of the Trinity, and he made us to exist in communal existence as well. At the end of chapter 2, God says it's not good that the man should be alone. And God responds by creating the first human community, a family. Humanity is not meant for isolation. That would not be good. That would not be tov. It wouldn't reflect God's design or character. God exists in the community of the Trinity. We are to exist in community too. In families, in churches, in societies. In this we reflect him. Fourth, God intends humanity to engage in moral reasoning. 
Five times in Genesis 1, we read that God separated things. Same verb is found in Leviticus 10, where God told the Israelites, you are to distinguish, same verb, between holy and common, between clean and unclean. Now, the idea is not that we're to decide what's right for ourselves. No, God alone is the arbiter of what's good. God decides what's in line with His design and character. And we'll see in chapter 3, when humanity tries to usurp that function, that's when we bring sin and death and ruin into creation. We are not to arbitrate the good for ourselves. But God does intend for us to apply His determinations of right and wrong to situations. The Israelites would not have known clean from unclean if God had not told them, but knowing they were expected to obey. Adam was told not to eat from the tree of knowledge. He had the ability to understand that he should obey God in that and not transgress. And in having the ability to apply God's moral designations in real-life situations, we reflect God's own moral reasoning. Finally, fifth, we reflect God in that we were created to exercise rulership. We saw last week that God names a number of objects in chapter 1. Verse 5, he names day and night. In verse 8, he names the heavens. In verse 10, he names the earth and seas. And we said last week, that is God asserting his sovereignty. But after verse 10, God doesn't assign any more names. The next time anybody names anything is in chapter 2, verse 20. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. As God is a ruler, so he has created man to be a ruler. Not as God's equals, but as God's deputies. We are God's lieutenants in the visible creation. And that's the second big thing we see in verse 26. Not just who we are to be, but what we are to do. And what we are to do is have dominion. The verb means to rule. Humanity is given rulership over all forms of animal life. A rulership subject to God's greater rulership. And having decreed his intent for humanity, now God makes man. Look at verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now humanity begins. And as that happens, God imposes an organization upon humanity. Now humanity's organization is different from all the other life forms created in the first week. When God created the animals, he created them according to their kinds in different species. That's not so for humanity. God created all people to belong to the same species. There's only one human race. Now there will be a distinction of humanity into different ethnic groups in Genesis 10 and 11. But God did not create higher and lower species of humans. Now, the only distinction God made among people was the sexual differentiation of male from female. Now, I had hoped to spend a lot, of week this, a lot of time this week talking about the prevailing gender ideology that is running riot over our society. For the sake of time, I'm going to defer most of that until we come to chapter 2. But I want you to see that God here intentionally divides humanity into two groups, into men and into women. And that binary is a fixed biological and personal reality hardwired into our chromosomes. It is not changeable. And having created humanity, God now demonstrates his gracious kindness. Look at verse 28. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. 
and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God tells man to rule over other life forms on earth and he empowers them to fulfill this command. He enables them to reproduce, to be fruitful and multiply, to fill all of the dry land and to conquer the earth, to bring all forms of life under human mastery, not just on the land, but at sea and in the air too. So God blesses man by revealing our purpose and by enabling the first humans to fulfill that purpose. But while God gives humanity this task of rulership, human rulership is not absolute. We are not a law unto ourselves. We are accountable to God. And we see that in what God says next. Look at verse 29. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. Here God limits the dominion of man. Yes, humans rule over the animals, but our rule is subject to boundaries. And here God gives the first boundary. People were forbidden from killing and eating animals at the beginning. Our rule over earth was a benevolent rule, a kind shepherding, not cruel exploitation. And so God restricts people to eat only plants. And note that that restriction wasn't just given to people, it was given to animals too. Look at verse 30. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. Now in our world today, some animals eat veggies, some eat only meat. Sunday doesn't know what to do with veggies, he really likes fish. And so we might be surprised to learn that originally all animals ate only vegetables. And some people have said, oh, see, we can't trust Genesis because of that. Because many animals today eat only meat. But what we see here is a snapshot of life before the fall, before sin and death and ruin entered the world. After the fall, many things changed, including apparently that some animals became carnivorous. But it was not originally so, because death was not a part of God's design for this world, or his original design. Now, I think it's noteworthy that God gives this instruction about the animal's diet here only after man is created. He doesn't say this to the animals as they are created. He does it now. And why is that? Because humanity is God's deputy on the earth. Because we are to rule over the animals. And so God gives this command now to the first people so that we might enforce it to supervise and guard and shepherd against disorder entering the world through the animal kingdom. And having given this instruction, now God's work in creation is done. He's created matter out of nothingness. He's built the heavens and a habitable planet. He's filled the sky with celestial bodies. He's filled the earth with living animals. And as his supreme act, he has created man as his image bearers, subject to his commands, and yet we are to enforce his commands. And having done all this, verse 31, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. God here decrees not just that creation is good, but it is mightily good. It is powerfully good. It thoroughly reflects God's design and character. And with that, the sixth day ends. Now, what should we take from this second point? Let me close by offering five applications. The first three relate to the idea that we should believe God's truth and not mix it with worldly lies. So first, we must not think too lowly of ourselves. 
Many people today have been deceived by evolutionary thinking into believing that we are just animals, that what we do has no moral, eternal consequence. And so people act like beasts, endlessly indulging the flesh. We think nothing of taking from others, of exploiting others for money or sex or to get ahead. We abuse substances because they give us a temporary high. Many revel in violence because we have believed the lie and we've forgotten who we really are. That we're God's image bearers. That we are not part of the animal kingdom. We are distinct from it. Our uniqueness is emphasized by the fact that God explicitly says what he's going to do before he creates us. And there are other grammatical features here in Genesis 1 that mark out man's creation as being distinct. Friends, we have been set over and above the rest of earthly life. Psalm 8 says, You have made man a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Friends, we aren't just animals. We are the summit of God's visible creation, and we need to remember that. But second, we must not think too highly of ourselves. While God made man to uniquely reflect him, we've got to remember today, we are a fallen and cursed race. Instead of exercising dominion as God commanded, the first people chose to rebel against God. And we're the heirs to their fallen nature. And while many people today act like animals, others are puffed up with arrogance, imagining themselves to be very wise and godlike. We style ourselves free thinkers, unchained by the ignorance of the past, liberated from ideas about God and judgment. Friends, that too is folly. We are not autonomous, unaccountable gods. We are God's creatures responsible to Him. Psalm 100 says, Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people, the sheep of His pasture. And friends, He will hold us to account. Because Hebrews 9 says, It's appointed for man to die once, and then comes judgment. Third, we must think accurately about ourselves. Not too highly and not too lowly. But we also don't want to allow the world's lies to confuse us. And yet many people today are profoundly confused about who we are, especially in the area of gender identity. Now we need to address this with some pastoral sensitivity because this is a painful subject for many people. But we must also speak the truth. Friends, God's creation design is good. And God organized people into a binary of being male and female. That reflects God's good design and character. And whatever opposes God's good design and character is evil. And there are many ideas today that are prevalent that are evil. That lie to people and tell them their biological sex should not determine their self-conception or their gender identity. That tell people your body might be wrong. Your inner feelings are more accurate about who you really are than your biology or your anatomy. The whisper to people, if you don't fit into gender stereotypes, maybe you're transgender. If you're a boy who likes art, if you're a girl who likes sports, maybe you're not really a boy or a girl. Friends, this is wickedness. Preying upon legitimate differences in people's interests or emotional makeups or appearances. Exploiting people's stereotypes to, to confuse people 
hoping to get them to deny the reality of who they are so that we can give them hormone replacement and, gender, and, gen, and gen, general mutilating surgery. Friends, the propagation of this is profoundly wrong. Today, if you struggle with these things, I want to tell you that God's creation of the categories of male and female, of man and woman, is good. And I want to tell you God is good, and you can trust Him, and you can believe Him. And I want to tell you that your biology testifies to who you really are. And you should live in light of God's design. doesn't mean you've got to conform to some gender stereotype. You can be a man and wear pink. You can be a woman and like camping. But what you shouldn't do is let the world lie to you and conform you to its false view of gender identity and sexual expression. Live in line with the body that God has providentially given you and live in line with that. And friend, if you don't struggle with this issue yourself, I urge you, do not become a stumbling block to others by adopting the world's false ideas about this subject. Do not unconditionally affirm other people when they say they're struggling with this and identifying themselves contrary to their biology. Because, friend, it is not our role to say what is good. That's God's role. It is our role to obey what God has determined to be good. And we must not compromise God's truth by capitulating to the world or allowing the world's lies to direct our thinking. Now, I want to give two final applications here that relate to the gospel. And the first is this. God has been imaged supremely, not through humanity as a whole, but through one man, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1 says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Yes, humanity testifies that creation belongs to God and that God exists, but God is supremely revealed through Jesus. Jesus is the perfect image of God to the extent he can say in John 14, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. His interaction with his disciples and with the needy shows God's love and kindness. His teaching shows God's truth and authority. His anger at hypocrisy and sin shows God's justice and wrath. Jesus is the perfect representation of God on earth. And that's seen nowhere more clearly than at the cross, where Jesus died for our sins, revealing the full measure of God's anger against our rebellion, showing the penalty that should have fallen on each of us, and also revealing the full measure of his love, offering hope for ruined sinners like all of us, that we might be reconciled to him as we turn away from our lives of sin and cast ourselves upon the mercy of Christ who will forgive us. Friends, we see God most clearly through the finished work of Jesus. And so today I want to ask you, have you come to know the Father through the Son? Do you acknowledge that you are a sinner? Have you cast yourself upon Jesus on the basis of his deity, death, and resurrection? Friends, we all will give an account to him in the end. The only way to survive his judgment is to be in Christ and know that his furious wrath awaits all who will not bow the knee to him. But our final application is for believers. If you have come to Christ, what does God want from us today? Well, God blessed the first people by disclosing his intention for their lives and enabling them to fulfill it. He told them to fill and subdue the earth, and he allowed them to reproduce. It's what God told Adam. It's what he told Noah after Noah got off the ark. It's what God told Jacob moments after renaming him Israel. But on this side of the cross, God has given a new charge to his people. 
The first command given under the new, the new covenant is this, Matthew 28, 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. The command God gives to believers today is not physical reproduction, but spiritual reproduction. And to accomplish that goal, we need a spiritual enablement. And interestingly, that is how the New Testament consistently uses the language of blessing. In the Old Testament, blessing is often seen as physical reproduction or material wealth. And that's because of the Mosaic Covenant and the terms through which God dealt with Israel. But today, things are different. We're under a new covenant. And Ephesians 1 tells us about the, believers, or the blessings that God gives to believers today. And he declares in Ephesians 1 that believers are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The blessings that we are blessed with today are these. He chose us in him. He, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. In him we have, the, in, in all wisdom and insight, he has made known to us the mystery of his will. In him we have obtained an inheritance and in him you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. These are the blessings God has given us to accomplish the charge that he has given to believers today. That we spiritually reproduce by making more disciples who will make more disciples. And so my final question to us today, friends, is this. If you have trusted Jesus, how are you doing with this command that he has given to us? To make disciples in every place on earth. Friend, is there anybody that you are discipling through evangelism, calling them to believe in the gospel, in your family or in your friend group? Is there anyone to whom you are imparting spiritual truth so that they might grow in an understanding of who Jesus is and, and what his commands are? Today, how do you see God? Do you see him only through an Old Testament grid? of blessing as family growth and personal prosperity? Or do you see that God has blessed and empowered you spiritually with his salvation, with the knowledge of his will, with his indwelling spirit so that he might be made known throughout the world? That's the charge that stands over us today as we wait for the return of Jesus who will soon come. And friends, when he comes, all things will be put under his feet. He will subjugate this world. He will exercise dominion over it. He will set all things right under the rule of his Father. He will destroy all evil. And he will make all things new. So may our great King, the Lord of all Jesus, come quickly.